one button that I'm... I'm very relaxed, as you can tell, I've been stretching. G'day, mate. Welcome to back to the ISS podcast. Uh, part two, we couldn't fit the whole story in, in 90 minutes. Let's see if we can get it in now. Um, now that you're coming on, we've got a long, we've got your history post-defense to go through, but some of the big stuff that I want to hit on too, a man of your knowledge, um, we can touch on the Ukraine stuff if you've uh, got your head into that a little bit. How are you, mate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's uh, been a... Um Busy, you know, Chrissy and New Year, I guess, for everyone. And uh, the weather's got its own challenges. You know, last week it was boiling hot. And today, this week, it's been thunderstorms and and um, flooding in Sydney. So never a dull moment. No, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, well, I mean, everything's coming up to the election now. So everyone's going to be making up the... the we're not going to get a whole lot of truth out of anything. There'll be a lot of spin. The election is a massive one, and I think it's going to take agitators. I know I'm agitating the fuck out of Karen Andrews about the Australian families still stuck in Syrian camps. Uh, you know, the the only and the only reason the world found out initially about the uh, ISIS camp attacks was a you know teenager Australian kid in the camp calling for help. Like, what's that about? Anyway, bring it on. Bring it on. Um, so let's go over part one. We spoke about you, for everyone else that hasn't gone back, go back and have a uh, listen to part one of the Terrace Hunter. Um, Shane, you spent a, a large part of your career as an intelligence analyst uh, and then you moved on to uh, doing domestic counterterrorism and counter violent extremism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, no... Uh, CVE work in the military, but in uh, in the job I had in So Command, when I was back in Australia, I was part of uh, the tactical assault groups East and West um, and the special recovery operations. Uh, so the actual exercise tempo in that space is really, really high because of the tags have got to be constantly certified in certain aspects of their mission set. Um, and so, for example, uh, when Chogham, so the Commonwealth Heads of Government, was on in Australia, uh, Op Amulate in 2011, um, you know, I spent two months on the West Coast. Uh, and that's, you know, you, you do a crawl, walk, run approach just because you're working with, you know, the, the best unit in the Australian military. What makes them the best unit is they start from crawl, right? We haven't done this mission set for a little while. Let's go to the basics. Let's go to, uh, you know our shooting, our weapons, our, our driving, and and then that culminates with a couple of full mission profiles, you know, a week out, um, which was, you know, awesome. Uh, the Queen was in the country at the same space uh, or same time, so we're also doing some oversight with the Queen, and then uh, President Obama came out, um, and he was in Canberra. Then he went up to Darwin for a... Uh, ceremony for a bombing of Darwin. And so we had to fly uh, across to Canberra and then, oh, I'll never forget this, we had to fly to Darwin behind his, uh, plant, uh, in front of us, sorry, land on Darwin Airfield, basically sit there for him to do the four-hour ceremony, come back and then fly to Hawaii. Then we flew back to Perth. So, um, you know, I know my, uh, my ex-wife, she used to hate, hate it more when I was on uh, domestic counterterrorism than in Afghanistan because 
you know, you're getting messages at two in the morning coming to work and, uh, yeah, you know, you, you go in for a day and you're on an exercise or, you know, I did um, some real-time operations that you just can't plan for. So it was awesome. What is int- what it actually is Chogham and the G20 for, for other people? Like, and, and how much goes into those events and, and the security behind them? And is there a threat to those particular meetings? Yeah, so obviously Chogham is the Commonwealth um, heads of government. So all the leaders in the uh, current or previous Commonwealth countries and, and the Queen is the head of the Commonwealth still. So she oversees that. So she's going to be in location um, or, you know, Prince Charles, but predominantly used to be the Queen. So you've got to look at what countries are attending and, and what their threats are. So um, that can be more of a um, uh, a threat issue for, a, for the hosting country because you've got to really assess and analyse all of that. And the enemy has got a lot longer lead time than you have, especially if you're in a busy organisation. So they could plant or have local cells or dissidents on the ground, you know, two years in advance, essentially, or in university. So there's a lot of leading prep from a threat risk side. For and, and the G20 is the same. So that's the global, the head leaders of the 20 um, leading global countries. You know, and obviously it's headed by um, POTUS, so the President of the United States, uh, Xi Jinping from China, Russia. They all turn up, maybe only for a couple of days, but they get there. It's like the big cousin to the G7 and 8. Um, you know, and that was in Brisbane. Um, so yep. who would, I mean, noting that there are heads from such a wide variety of, of countries, who would actually be one of the people that would look to attack that particular summit? What, what well, country got, would you? So you've got America as, you know, presidents coming out. So you've got Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, um, you know, you obviously notable ones. Um, then you've got political terrorists, and I'll use that term re- referencing the US because, uh, you know, it's obviously a big part there. But, you know, you might have uh, Republican um, supporters come out. So it's, and it, it spans everything from um, passive protest, key demonstrators, uh, political demonstrators, right through to your, your terrorism threats. So, you know, anyone really, from someone like uh, in Sydney the other day, they blocked off a major road. Now, if that's a motorcade road or something, that's a threat you've got to look at right through to your sophisticated attacks. But would there be countries where, like, if, if it's Australia, you're like, hey, come on, this would be probably, this is fairly safe, or they do the G20 and, I mean, are they host nations that, that rotate through, or do they put them yeah. in, like, real weird countries? Uh, both. So Chogham goes to Africa, you know, it goes to any country that's a member of the Commonwealth Heads can host one of those events. So uh, the UK uh, MI6 really has the lead for that. Uh, not at a tactical sense, but definitely operational when they're looking, they start, um, and you know, most people don't like to admit it, but within the intelligence, global intelligence community, every country's intelligence uh, architecture and capabilities is assessed. So if they come to Australia in the five eyes, work with everyone, they know that they don't have to do as much, I'll say, uh, oversight 
as if they're going to an African country, for example, uh, you know, or when they're going into Canada. But let's look at Canada recent times, the trucker dispute and the emergency powers. If there was a Chogham scheduled to be headed in Canada, um, that would elevate. Uh, and then with the G20 or any time you've got the president of the United States going anywhere, Secret Service are in charge. You know, even when you get him or one of the senior US political figures into Australia, the Secret Service advance are out months in a, you know months earlier, uh, checking routes, liaising with local law enforcement. You know that road's going to be blocked. We want access to this. And with the US, if you don't give them what they want, they just trips not happening. So if if we were talking like that, and and the American Secret Service was liaising with the federal police. Yep. Uh, they are literally just like, this is what we're doing or it's yep. not happening. Yep. So, yep. And the Secret Service, because of our close ties, has a permanent presence in the US Embassy in Australia. So, again, that constant dialogue and um, updating liaisons going on. But 100%, if, if you don't give the Secret Service everything that they request, they just not happening. That They have complete... And that goes back to my first experience with them uh, leading up to the Sydney Olympics. Uh, they were the only country, except Israel, that were allowed to carry weapons. Uh, their security guys carry weapons with inside Australia. Uh, the Brits weren't, but they're like, look, if you want, if you want a US presence, then. Um, and Israel, ever since Munich, are exactly the same. They're just like, uh, no, this is what we're doing. Yep, yep, pretty much. So I can't believe that. Yeah, so from my role as the, um, especially uh, the CB, so chemical, biological, radiological, explosive um, threat analyst, um, you know, I'm liaising with them from that side of the house. Is there an ID threat? Um, and then uh, looking at force protection measures, barriers on sidewalks, and, um, you know, in the G20 in the early days, there was a little bit of. Um, lack of communication on the ops part and they put the uh, big barriers on the road and not on the footpath which made some of the secondary roads um, too tight for some of the lead vehicles to fire trucks and that to get down so you know and, and this is why you rehearse and you get to the areas you know weeks in advance and you do your full mission profiles because the other thing the host nation's uh, emergency response have to be certified and so for example you pick say they're having it in sydney you pick six hotels that the delegates can stay in and only those six and then the security uh, apparatus has to be certified in conducting uh, operations within those hotels um yeah, yeah yeah so you know that's why for example as part of the tactical assault group handover so that at an operational level, gets handed over every 12 months. You've got to certify Martin Place, Opera House, every year at about October, November. You know, you set your watch by two commando doing the exercises around Sydney and Blackhawks flying around the harbour, you know, ship underway, um, subterranean assault. And then they'll go to other states and key um, areas there um, and get certified. And, and you know, if you if you do a... Uh, FMP, so a, a, an op a certification operation, and it doesn't go to plan, nah, got to do it again, got to do it again. 
So it, it, it's very, very high tempo. Um, and from both sides of the house, you're always exercising and you've always got some sort of operation, whether it involves four men liaison element to you know a commando company group. So with the Martin place that just happened, noting that, uh, well, not just happened, a couple of years ago now, yeah, they Lint. had, or the Lint Cafe, wasn't it? It was at yeah, Martin yeah, place. Yeah. yeah, yeah, correct, yep. Um, and the schmozzle where there was a jurisdictional problem, it was because yeah. two commanders didn't have authority to operate within, within the city or what was the actual no, no, process? No, no. Yeah, so what it was, the New South Wales Police, now everything I'm going to say is in the Martin Place coronial inquest. Uh, they wouldn't call it a terrorist incident. Uh, so because they wouldn't do that, it didn't enact the uh, national counterterrorism strategy, which the moment that happens, the um, ADF can, uh, can become involved. Now, the ADF were already rehearsing and had liaison officers in place. I was involved in, in uh, the Link Cafe siege at a intelligence liaison capacity. But because they knew that the moment they call it a a, um, terrorist incident, even though the whole world, including the Prime Minister, was calling it a terrorist incident, because the New South Wales government wouldn't, uh, the ADF were very limited to what they could do. Um, And then the other issue, so the backside to the Link Cafe uh, is the the Link Cafe wasn't the only target. Martin... um, Man, Monis prior had already um, said that he had planted bombs in a number of locations in Sydney. Now, that quickly drained the bomb squad's resources. So because they didn't make it a terrorism incident, the, they had to get other bomb squad guys from the um, Queensland police to come down to augment them. And then you have work-rest ratio. So... You know, after 12 hours, you've got to have a secondary uh, force in any capacity from the tactical assault group or the police special operations group to the bomb squad to the general duties coppers um, manning the outer perimeter or the outer cordon. And so you got to look at that. Um, and that was where the schmozzle started. Um, and I could go into the litany of um, other issues. But after that, and after the coronial report, they reframed the um, national terrorist, I guess, call out. Um, so the Governor General, who actually is in command of the Australian Defence Force uh, via the Prime, well, and then the Prime Minister, they now have a lot greater powers to step in over the states in a terrorism incident. Yeah, I was, I mean, this is all part of the thing, especially with COVID, that sort of pulled the blinkers off me. I, th- I assumed that we were a federation and the prime minister could actually boss the states around. No, that is actually not correct. And, and you know, the prime, the premiers can do whatever the fuck they want generally. Uh, and it was only now with these additional powers that we're giving them that, to the prime minister that they can actually step in and, and tell them what to do. Yeah, I agree. I was really shocked by that. I think about eight months in when it was really, you know, the – you were coming up to, I think it was the WA in Queensland elections and Anna and dictator Mark were really um, trying to outdo each other on how harsh they could treat their um, populations. 
I reached out to some friends of mine, like academics and uh, legal scholars, and said, fuck, surely that the Prime Minister can go to the Supreme Court or there is something in our constitution that the Prime Minister can do this. And, you know, uh, I, I guess it's one, one way you look at the US constitution and their founding fathers and hats off that they wrote such a robust, robust document, um, whereas you're 100% right. And I think that shocked... 100% of Australia. And because if you remember before that, the bushfires, when, you know, Scott Morrison copped grief for being in Bali and there was that famous fire truck guy that pulled over and got out and he's yelling, where are you, Scott? Well, I think we've discussed this before too. Scott Morrison couldn't do anything. It was up to the states. The states run the, the fire services, both the uh, rural and the uh, metropolitan ones. And the Commonwealth just gives out money, really. The A lot of their... Um, a lot of the logistics and that is is at a state level. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm it's a big glad, bank. Yeah, hundred percent. But I'm glad that um, you know, and I tweeted this out about eight weeks ago. Why they hadn't already um, asked for ADF help from you know MedCorp and um, Transport Corps. You know, like when they're saying that all these nurses and ambulance officers were struggling just because of fatigue. The medical corps, all the army medics, they do those AMBO courses. They qualified to drive an ambulance under lights and sirens. Partner them up with one of New South Wales AMBO. The army guy or girl drives, and the AMBO's in the back with the patient. That doubles your workforce. But and it's all there under the, the Defence Aid to Civil Communities Authorities. Um, but I'm glad that in a lot of sense, sanity prevailed because you look at the areas that the government does have control of. How quick did we send um, assistance to Tonga? You yeah, know, in 24, wasn't it? I mean, people yeah. were spinning up. Yep. And what you, we know, you know, we've both been in those uh, in the ADF in those times. You just go to work anyway. You want to help. You join the army or the defence force to help Australians. So it's not hard for the bosses to call, you know, opera or people back into work because most of the time they're coming back already, already you know. The bushfires the year before when they got, the again, the Navy in because water was the only way they could reach those people in the South Coast, most of those guys and girls were heading back to work already. You know, I'm here, boss, let's go. That that's gets lost a lot of the time. But at, at its core, and I know on our last podcast we spoke a lot about why does someone join to go to war? Well, it's not necessarily war. It's we join to serve, you know, to serve Australians. And whether it's a bushfire or floods or COVID or a war, we want to help Australians. Yeah, I think that COVID stuff got long in the tooth um, from that. Um, I think the boys are stretched. I think they've actually been tasked to do nursing care. Yeah. Uh, they're looking after, but it's interesting. So from all this, doing all this, so working as an intelligence analyst, working with uh, in the special forces community um, and working on these high-profile stuff, this took a toll, I'm assuming, one day, and you said, look, you know what, I'm get, I'm, or whatever it was, I'm, just, I'm, I'm getting out. Was your transition smooth, getting out, or how'd you go? So um, I was supposed to have a shoulder surgery uh, on in October 2014. And, um, you know, we were out of Afghanistan. There was nothing really on the horizon. Uh, and it, it was kind of um, I was going to really reduce my commitment post-surgery 
And then obviously the Islamic State flared up and, you know, I ended up in Iraq or in the Middle East in, in August of that year. Um, and then I got back at the back end of March 15 and not only was my right shoulder busted, but so was my left. And um, so I had both of my surgeries within a year and, and they didn't go well. So rehab was an absolute nightmare. Uh, so I got discharged in September 16, but uh, I was only medically downgraded. I received some pretty poor advice. I had an um, incompetent separation health examination, uh, but had somewhere to go. So I transitioned out and I was doing um, security vetting initially. Um, and the main was, I'll never forget, and I was only having to talk about this yesterday, when I got back from Iraq, you know, my, my uh, uh, middle son, Zach, I was uh, in Afghanistan in 2012 when, when he was born and, uh, you know, f- had missed a lot of his early part of his life and um, we had planned a massive birthday party for his second birthday thinking I was going to be home and that, you know, that was in mid-September. So then obviously I've deployed to the Middle East um, and I remember getting off that, that um, plane and as you come out of customs at Sydney Airport, he's come running down and jumped in with arms and I just started crying and as I was still walking out, um, the boss looked at me and he just goes, you're done, aren't you, mate? And I just went, yeah, yeah, I'm done. And it was at that point that my whole world became about becoming a dad and being a good dad. Um, so that focusing on that made transition I'll say easier at the time because that was my front side focus, but it took a tile backside because I didn't understand about mental health. Because my separational health exam was so poor, I thought I was in much better physical and mental shape than I was. Um, so, but, but it was nothing, you know, it was a high five. Um, the unit initially gave me a heap of exercise to come back and do reserve time. I didn't even clean my locker out, you know. It was like, yeah, we'll see you in a couple of weeks to work with the Yanks, the SF dudes coming out. I go, yeah, cool. None of that played out. Uh, absolutely none of it. You know, I got a, a nasty gram, come and get your shit out of your locker or we're going to throw it in a bin. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I, and then I got all my physical um, injuries went downhill. I got uh, capsulitis in both my shoulders, which resulted in a permanent 70% loss of movement. Can't put my arms above my head, can't put my arms behind my back, chronic pain, and then um, the mental health issues started. Um, and the, the kick in the nuts for me was it came in 2020 when I, I worked out the retrospective medical discharge route. And the, the actual cell in the ADF that would look after that, they were excellent. Um, but they, and I'm happy to post it, they sent me a letter. Um, which was the acknowledgement uh, of me being retrospective medically discharged. But like one of the points said on it, uh, you know, we as in the ADF knew that Corporal Healy was a psychological wreck from 2011. I'm like, well, why did you let me continually deploy and why didn't you help me back then? And, you know, they said, you know, he knew that his uh, right shoulder was um, unfit for service. I'm like, you deployed me again there too. So, um Army didn't. Army wanted what Army got. Um, now, while I say, and I used to say that it was my fault, I was very job focused. In reflection, um, 
I never had the choice or the, the ability to make that decision because no one from Army actually came to me and said I was busted. So it's one thing to say I made the choice to continue, you know, say even to go to Iraq in 14, 15. Um, but I wasn't given a choice because I didn't know that uh, Army already viewed me as a psychological wreck or that my physical injuries were at a place that it was going to have a permanent effect. So, um, and, but I was lucky. I had a good support network within the veterans community, you know, shout out to, uh, Benny and the Northern beaches veterans center that helped with my DVA process, um, until DVA became DVA and, you know, com super absolutely woeful. Um, but yeah. And then, so you're going through a fucking, a nightmare of, of one tra- one job to the next. What were you doing? What got you into back into work or, I mean, was there a dwell? What's the process? So I, um, me and another guy I worked with, we uh, obviously, uh, in the role that I had in military, one of our, I'll say 5% was protective security within a unit. So clearances and vetting and stuff. So we looked at vetting for clearances is all outsourced to some companies. So we go, fuck, how do you get that job? We already had the qualifications through defense to do that role. We made some inquiries and, and the money's pretty good to be fair. To, um, to, to vet security yeah. clearances? Yep. So to do uh, to vet someone to get an NV one, so a secret clearance, uh, you get about four hundred bucks per pack. Well, how much yeah, work to do an NV one? So a young nineteen-year-old kid going to Kapuka to go on to become a Sig or you know some role that they require an NV one. Uh, you know, a kid who's still on his under his, you know living at home and that. It's about fifteen minutes to be honest. Um, bucks for 15 minutes work yeah you know because you at a secret level you don't have to do an interview unless there's uh extenuating circumstances so criminal record um uh, divorce or, or something but if like i said most of them young kids going to kapooka or um going into the navy especially the navy because most of them are technical trades it's not hard you know at all uh nv2 where you have to do an interview the interview takes time. You've got to organise it. Uh, if you're not proficient, uh, then you can chase your tail a bit. But what I did, I did. Uh, I had to have interview days. So I would schedule every second Wednesday as just an interview day. And because Perfect. I've done a yeah, and, and because I've done a lot of it, I kind of know how to make it flow in that protective security interview sense. Um, but if you hadn't had that training and experience that could drag on. Uh, like I, I did one interview with a, um, a I've just got a, a major f- from an engineering organization within the army and he was getting an upgrade from an NV1 to an NV2. So he'd already had a secret clearance. So therefore he already had access to the, um, the um, what's their secret? Uh, DSN? Yeah, DSN. Sorry, how's that? Blank. Anyway. So he, it was actually a um, lateral transfer from the Philippines Army. And anyway, so, yeah. So I go and start the interview and I'm just thinking I'm talking to a civil engineer that wanted a better life, you know, and joined the Australian Army. 
So we start talking and, and I go, all right, so tell me about your military career in the Philippines Army. He goes, oh, well, you know, I joined the officer corps, blah, blah, blah. Then I did my intelligence training. And I'm like, what? Hang on. <laughs> goes, yeah, yeah. And then he goes, yeah. And then I said, oh, so what did you do in the, in, in the Philippines intelligence? Oh, human intelligence in southern Philippines, which is all in, you know, terrorism area. I'm like, what? And then he goes, oh, yeah, you know, my best friend, he's now the attache in Canberra and Long story short, I've just kind of wound the interview down and rang camera and said, mate, you need to have a look at this bloke. Not saying he was doing anything nefarious, but uh, he had access to the DSN and could quite easily uh, pass Five Eyes documents onto his best mate who's the attache at an embassy in Canberra. Hello. So, so occasionally... Have you, ever, have you ever nailed, like, got someone in the middle, like, like yeah. flat-out terrorist or... Not in that capacity. Not doing a not a flat out terrorist doing uh, vetting. But you know, well, I don't know the back end of that. Once I handed it over to DSA and agencies in Canberra, I don't know where it went from there. But to me, that was massive red flags. You know, he shouldn't have had a secret clearance line. And because what they've got to look at is, did he line his? Did he? How open and honest was he in his initial transfer? Did he just say he was in? A Philippine civil engineer coming across to a, a, a construction company and engineer corps in the army. Uh, you know, did he disclose his background? So, which is why I handballed it. it. It could have been a nightmare. And I just went, nah, there you go, DC or uh, AXPA, off you go. And no other like little close call, any ripper stories? Yeah, so um, there was a, a few in the criminal space. So guys that had had, uh, I'll say, extensive criminal um, backgrounds. Um, there was one poor bloke that, when he was in his early twenties, was a bit of a bit of a hothead, and you know had a few assault charges and drink driving, and um, but really had a wake up call and had turned his life around and uh, was working hard, raising his kids in South Australia, and um, you know I felt really bad because under the guidelines, he hadn't reached some thresholds, but you could just tell he was such a genuine bloke, uh, you know, didn't drink anymore, was married, raising kids, working hard. Um, so, you know, I went into bat for him. So there's a lot of that, a lot of pot smokers, because you, you ring friends up. And the first thing I always go is, uh, during the interview, I go, right, so you've nominated Fred and Barney as uh, you two people for interview. Yeah. Who don't you want me to talk to? What? Well, give me a name of someone that you don't want me to talk to and why. And if they're not open about that or like, you know, or my ex-wife, why? Well, she's my ex-wife and hates me. Well, that's a genuine answer and you can have a bit of a banter, but I used to throw that one out there because, you know, you load up, hey, uh, a vet is going to ring you. Uh, you know, make make me out to be a good bloke. And everyone does that. So I used to throw that out there and some of the answers were pretty funny. Um, you have to ask about their sexuality because you're trying to look for leverage points that an adversary can use to then um, get information from you. So compromising photos, uh, opinions, things like that. Then someone can go, well... If you don't get that information for me, I'm going to release this, or oh, I'm going to tell your wife you're doing this, or you know. Um, so if I was like a, if I was a closet uh, bestiality, porn so watcher. I'll talk to you. So, all right, Max, um, tell me about your sexuality. 
Uh, I'm straight, and okay. I, yep. So, Go. is there any anything in your, you know, what year did you lose your virginity? Well, this is good. Twenty uh, when I was seventeen. Uh, and you know, how did that go? Terribly, as you would expect. Have you had any sexual experiences that you're ashamed of? Mm, probably ninety percent of them. Yeah, <laughs> I get where you we're know, going. And then why you're ashamed of it? Oh, I didn't perform well. Yep. Or there were photos taken, or a video was taken. Right. Where's that? Because that video can then be leveraged. And if we look at uh, the Australians that have been convicted of um, s- stealing government documents, the young blokes all got um, um, bribed by prostitutes. No so way. They, yeah, they, uh, uh, I think his name's John D. West Whispelair, I think he's one of his name, the kid's name. But he used to go to a brothel in Canberra. He worked at one of the intelligence agencies and, you know, and he was lonely and wanted comfort and um, started, uh, you know, getting in there a little bit drunk and talking out of school. And and then she just got to a point where I think she even became his girlfriend um, and then turned around and said, hey, you know, you can get some stuff and we can sell it, make some money and retire. And he's like, oh, yep, no dramas and... They tried selling some uh, information about the US to a third country and that third country just contacted the US and said, hey, this is what's going on. And so the guy got caught and arrested, but it was all because he was being honey trapped. So, um, and gambling's another one, but yeah, so your sexual um, background and gambling um, are two big ones you've got to explore. I know when I did my top secret um, interviews, I had a really straight... Um, uh, no nonsense kind of guy and he goes so tell me about uh, how would you describe your sexuality and I go I'm trisexual and he goes and what does that mean I said oh, I'll try anything once <laughs> and he, he didn't he just started writing and I started laughing he goes, mate that's a joke and he goes uh, this isn't the place to be making those kind of jokes <laughs> it's like oh shit right at me so yeah you know um, and having been through the process when you're actually doing it you kind of understand it a bit better Um but gambling's another one, you know. How often do you gamble? Oh, um, you know, just when I'm at the pub. Oh, yep. So you hit the one-armed bandits. Oh, yep. How often do you go to? Because, you know, if you're pumping your pay, especially young soldiers and that, pumping your pay through the pokies and you need money. So you're looking for that. People think it's like, you know, links and this to is funny. People. They think it's they think it's quite benign, but it's effective. You're selling state secrets, right? And well, and what leads you and this. This understanding and learning this process was so beneficial later and, and to what I do now in the CVE because it was the first exposure I got to um, doing something like that. It's a process. It's not an event. No one just wakes up one morning and goes, I'm going into work today and I'm going to download some classified maps and then go into the Russian embassy and sell them. It just doesn't happen. It's a process. So it might start with your fight with a girlfriend or you've gambled your money away or you've lost your paycheck repeatedly uh, on the pokies and they might repossess your car and, you know what I mean? And instead of reaching out to your boss or going to see a cycle or talking to a mate, you hide it. Um, and these are the traits you're looking at and looking for in someone when you're vetting them. And now in what I do, what I'm looking for someone who's susceptible to becoming a extremist or a violent extremist. Right, so you went from... Um Vetting yeah, security. So vetting, yeah, vetting uh, for a company 
subcontracting to a company called Cogent, uh, and um, yep, and then um, my uh, ex-wife used to, and she's a corporate um, super uh, soldier, you know, right, she's really, really high up at Telstra, and uh, she'd come home all dressed up, looking at me in my board shorts, how's your day, oh yeah, I logged on, I did some work, went to the gym, uh, I had a swim, and she's like, that's not work, right, you've got to get a job. <laughs> And I'm like, what? I'm earning more than I earned in the army. No, that's, you're sitting in your board shorts all day is not a job. Okay. So then um, by sheer fluke, I uh, found out about the job at Talus, which we've discussed about the subs. Uh, so I went for that job and then and got it. So I was uh, the, I started, I'd, we got back from a family holiday from uh, Fiji on the Friday and I started on the Monday 9th of January uh, 2017, maybe 2018, 2018 in there somewhere. Anyway, and then uh, 18, 2018. And then um, I was the security manager for the underwater business unit for Talus Australia, which is their submarine projects. Uh, it's massive, massive job. Uh, vetting's required because you've got to get all these engineers um Qualify, get their security classification so they can access to the secret information about what's on a sub or how to build it or uh, having to um, accredit rooms to house secret and top secret servers and um, computers and stuff, access control points. So it was a pretty um, uh, full-on job doing a security risk um, threat brief. So, And from the perspective of um, an adversary, especially China and Russia, China being the main one, stealing uh, Australian industry defence secrets uh, and explaining to the staff how that works, so how they get uh, human uh, source, so how they get recruited. The, the, again, it's a process. It's not just some bloke you see in Hollywood where a guy rocks up and says, hey, you know, I'm a Chinese spy, can you start getting me stuff? It's a really, really long process involved in Having to be on top of that, um, there's a fair bit of politics inside a French company that is working on Australian classified uh, material that when the bosses want uh, access to that and you've got to say no. Like I had to refuse entry uh, for the Talus group, so the whole of Talus Global, the, uh, the guy who's in charge of that, I had to refuse him uh, access to a couple of rooms about a submarine project. I want to you know, understand that. Well, you can't, mate. I'm the boss. Well, it doesn't matter. You know, this is an Australian uh, compartmentalized program, and you're not Australian, and you don't have a clearance, so you can't go in there. And how they're all active, like, "How active are foreign agencies uh, every day? In, Hundreds of times every day in recruiting, trying to recruit. Yep. yep. And and we're doing this as well, I would assume. Not to the length, nowhere near to the length that they are. Uh, like every, you would have heard, and it's very uh, relevant in the media at the moment. Um, the Chinese uh, road and belts program, that's all a, an intelligence collection program. Their idea is to leverage debt on a, on a political uh, organization and then uh, trade that debt for acts for information. Um, they've got something in, um, I think QT's got a, a branch of it, but basically they fund parts of universities, again, to get access to information. They put university students into programs to learn about 
um, you know, nuclear fission and things like that, that uh, the Chinese Communist Party don't understand yet. Um, they, they are uh, prolific at stealing. Um, and I'll give you an example from an Australian context. It's, you can Google it. Um, a company called Kodan um, had invented a mine detector. And they were about to sign a $450 million contract in Africa to, through the UN to, to sell and train uh, all these African countries on detecting landmines. The Chinese Communist Party hacked into their computers, stole the um, specifications and the design, rebuilt their own, and then undercut Conan to the UN and they got the contract. Yeah, mate, we, um, we see this a lot with... Um uh, especially in DFSW when we used to do all the all the Chinese tanks are uh, literal rip-offs of either Russian, most of them are Russian, so they're types as opposed to T's. Um, yeah. But they are absolute rip-offs of every Western or other Eastern Bloc country equipment. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, even as far as like um, um, Komsky is a big one, but... Um, they were, and again, if you Google this, uh, China uh, tries to steal F-35 information. You know, the, the F-35 uh, jets, they were actively trying to break in because, you know, the ASD uh, and the cyber terrorist group in Canberra overlook the defense secret network. Um, so there's a lot of firewalls and stuff in, in there. So it's very hard for the Chinese government to hack into that. But now... A lot of the R&D that is outsourced to companies and um, universities, they don't have that firewall protection. They don't have the level of, level of encryption in that. So they just go, well, we don't have to target the ADF anymore. We just go target industry. And, and that's what they do. And, um, you know, they, they actively turn up to, I don't know if you've ever been to one or seen one, but every year in certain locations, Vegas and Dubai being two, they have military uh, conventions. So me and you can design a new gun and we get a stall over there and we try to sell it to all the world's armies. Well, the China don't buy it. They just write down, you know, Mex and Shane Incorporated and then try to hack into our systems and steal it. Bloody hell. Yeah, we had, we had one of the guys um, from Head Up Charity on the podcast last week and he's uh, in America at the moment doing – he's in China at the moment doing um, – Work. He's a laying cables for CNN, covering off on the Winter Olympics. Phenomenal. Some of the stories he's saying. We're going to get him on and, and have a yarn with him because he's saying it is, it is like he is marched to and from his room. Oh if, yeah. If you speak bad about the party, he goes the Wi-Fi will cut out, and we're like, no, it won't. Sure, sure enough, mate. Yeah. We tried to. Luckily, we had a localized recording on this end of the podcast because the actual online cloud recording of his just shut off halfway through bang and we're like no nah, you you're- yeah there was an interview a, a journalist is live talking to the camera and said something and they just pulled it straight off yep well, yeah um me and my brother uh simon uh we were the biggest distributors of sports supplements in australia in the late 90s early 2000s we had a company called supplement and nutrition distributors and uh, we did a fair bit of business in China, and um, they, even then, were all about reverse engineering. So you'd go over and go, 
you know, we want to buy creatine and protein powder. We, you know, we, we, we brought out, we were the first ones to bring pre-trainers into Australia, first ones to bring tribulus into Australia, and they'd want to know that and then try to make it themselves and, and start their own companies. And the other thing, uh, and it's, it's massive, and this is why um, Australia and America and that said no to Huawei and their 5G any company that does business or uh, has China, a Chinese company is part of them, under Chinese law, the Chinese government has to be able to have access to their file sets. So, for example, and I can't believe, like, Elon Musk has just started a Tesla factory in China. But so that basically gives the um, Chinese Communist Party legal authority to get any information from Tesla they want. So what's his, that sounds like so they're going to come out, we're going to get out a Chinese version of the Tesla. 100%, and they're already doing it. Already doing it. Mate, so <laughs> this is going to be interesting. We're going to have to, when we get to the, uh, I want to bring this up and, and how these state actors are going to start manoeuvring, yep. especially with the current, current yep. uh, crisis. But so you go from Thales, uh, knocking back. Yeah, so... Um, okay, so me, uh, we have uh, we fall pregnant with um, our middle son, uh, our youngest son, little Seb, um, and then when he's born uh, in May, um, I take paternity leave and saved up all my leave, um, and then during that I bumped into an old CO uh, from my military company or a military unit and he was the um, director for the office of police in New South Wales and he we're having a yarn and, and he said that um, uh, New South Wales juvenile justice was starting a CVE team and they needed a senior intelligence analyst so I, I um, got online and applied for the job uh, and and got it uh, so I was uh, so this was in uh, June, 2019 um, and um, so I was part of a five person team you know a couple of psychologists social worker criminologist and and we started um, working essentially with juvenile terrorism related offenders um, which you know was the start of where I am today um, in that professional sense and so we're talking about um actual radicalized youths convicted so when i started uh, there was five convicted four convicted four before the courts um, of serious terrorism um, attacks so um, two of them are the young guys that went into a, a rifle shop at bankstown and bought a bayonet uh, and then they left, they went around the corner and um, law enforcement arrested them there for they were just about to conduct um, a frenzied attack on Bankstown Police Station and Court. How old are these kids? How old are these? Uh, they were at the time 16. Um, uh, there were, another one was... Um, he was 17 and he... Um, wanted to purchase a gun to conduct an attack on Anzac Day. Um, another one was the younger cousin of uh, 
a guy who had already been convicted of a terrorism attack um, and he, one of the smartest people in that space I've ever worked with, but he was radicalizing recruiting adults online to get them to go to Syria. Uh, you know, so it wasn't just uh, kids that were susceptible. Some of these kids are, you know, sociopaths. Uh, some of the smartest, sophisticated terrorists I've ever worked with. Uh, but and so you're going in and doing these interviews. Yeah. I mean, is it is it just? I mean, you're trying to draw information out of them. What, yeah, yeah. So the f- first, it was very, very, very new. Um, not just to juvenile justice, but to Australia uh, and actually in the world. Um, my boss who started the team had done a, um, a one-month um, trip around America and Europe uh, with my old CO, as the, who was the Director of Office of Police. Um, the head of New South Wales Police Counterterrorism at the time, Mick Willing, uh, and the head of um, the um, extremist unit at New South Wales Education. They went to area of the Hague uh, and... There's two schools of thought in um, how to jail a, a terrorist. There's the what they call the contamination model, which is like your supermax, stick them all in there together. And then there's dispersal. So spread them out and uh, have society chip away at that extremist. And, um, and that was a process that we had. So there was a massive training burden on us to train all of the juvenile justice staff in identification of uh, radicalization and extremism within um, youth justice uh, jails, um, as well as then, you know, we, we didn't think it was as big a problem as it became uh, because no one had been watching it. But uh, the federal government, Home Affairs, had just... Um, brought out new legislation that gave the Commonwealth the ability to do continued detentions. Um, and New South Wales mirrored the legislation. So you had the um, higher risk terrorism offenders legislation, and then you had the terrorism, uh, HATA, higher risk terrorism offenders, and then throw terrorism, high risk offenders legislation. Uh, one was the Commonwealth, one was the state. And that basically gives the uh, either the ability to go to the Supreme Court and apply for a um, terrorism-related offender that is coming up for either parole or release to be de- to continue to be detained because they still have a terrorist ideology. Now, a lot of this legislation was mirrored off existing legislation in the sexual um, uh, predator space. So, a rapist. If rapists still, you know, they might get sentenced for twenty years, and at the end of that twenty years, they still deem to pose a risk to the community. So they can be um, kept in detention um, or they have what they call extended supervision orders. So their uh, parole or their um, might be coming up and they apply to those conditions are extended because they want to be uh, monitored more heavily in the community, especially online. Um, so that was brought out because uh, in 2005, there was a group of uh, domestic terrorists called Operation Pandanus. Half are in Sydney and half are in Melbourne. Now, because we don't have federal courts and federal penitentiaries, 
you get tried for a Commonwealth crime in the state that you're arrested. So the Pandanus guys, half of them got tried in New South Wales and half got tried in Victoria. And at that stage, Notoria um, judges were um, noted for giving lesser sentences than in New South Wales. And that's exactly what happened in this um, case. So all the guys in New South Wales got like 30, 35 year sentences. And the guys in Victoria got far less. So they had to bring this legislation in to ensure that any of the Victorian guys that still held these views could be kept in detention. When it dropped, uh, it turned out that the actual first convicted domestic terrorist that this legislation applied to was one of our juveniles in New South Wales. So we were the quote-unquote guinea pigs for the whole process from uh, doing the interviews, writing the reports, going to the um, briefings with the Minister for Health, uh, Minister for Home Affairs, um, and right through to going to the Supreme Court and giving evidence and then monitoring. So, how many is this? Is this a big problem in Australia? I mean, yep. radicalizing. Oh, what do you mean, big? Yeah, in, in jail, in the jail term, the, it is a problem in all correctional facilities um, for a number of reasons. Um, but it's a problem because there's no consensus on how to deal with it. There's a lot of people in the space that don't have an idea, but people listen to them and, um, home affairs are toothless tigers when it comes to go almost going back to COVID because they don't own the jails. They can't force the state's, um, correction organizations to follow the same procedure how does that um and then this is still something you're you're intimately involved yep. with now yeah 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 i still do um still do interviews go to jails do interviews write reports yep i'm blown away i who who are radicalizing these people is it other is other it, convicted yeah terrorists from inside prisons yeah yeah it all um uh, Prislam, as I call it, and uh, white supremacist, that all starts in jail. You know, they've got a lot of time in their hands. They've got to join a group or a tribe. Um, for some of them, it's actually a, a protective factor because it puts structure, especially converting to, to Islam, uh, you know, praying five times a day, uh, you know, living the five pillars, doing your charities, can have a positive, influ- uh, a positive influence especially in a correctional uh, environment because it, it does, it's putting someone on a, a positive path um, because it's adding structure to their life where when they don't have structure and they get idle or lazy and bored, then they can do negative things. The problem is because there's no set process, agreed process on the training and how that gets implemented from a, a organizational template, um, it, it's not viewed very favorably by a lot of like New South Wales corrections are dead against it they'd rather you know lock them all up in a supermax and and let the hate flourish and wow are these what's the sentences for if you get convicted of of you know these young kids 16 and, and stuff like that they're in they're in juvie so what do they so they, they, start, get, yeah, they get out or what no, no. So they start, yeah, the ones I initially worked with started in juvenile justice. Um, they can 
in New South Wales is the only state to have this, but when you get sentenced in uh, a juvenile court, you can apply for a 119, which means that you can actually serve up until your 21st birthday in juvenile justice. Um, so uh, some of the kids that I work with had 10, 15-year terrorism sentences, and they did from 15, 16 uh, in juvenile justice to their 21st birthday, then literally they get an orange jumpsuit and driven to Goulburn. Um, and that was some of the frustrating things. We had done some very, very good intervention work um, and really turned them around. Then they just going down um, into Goulburn. And uh, I know one of them in particular has done a 180 and he's as hardcore as ever. And then we just then they'll just get released out back out. In well, the- so he'll wind up going through the um, heart toe and throw processes, uh, and if he still holds the belief structure he's got currently, you know he'll get continued detention. So he'll stay in um, in custody um, indefinitely as long as he holds those beliefs. Can you take me through this continued detention stuff? So, I mean, let's say I go to prison for murdering someone or murdering yeah. like i don't know right and and it gets to the end of it and they go hey max is still a bit of a fucking fruit loop is that no, something they so can apply- not for murder no not, not not so much for murder um there's no legislation that i'm aware of um that um can uh, enable the government to extend a murderer's um time behind bars but that's the idea of top and bottom sentences so when you first go up for parole, uh, and you know you your paper, first of all it's a paper board. So has he done? The, one of the first things I look for is is there remorse? Is he remorseful of his act? Um, you know what work has he done with the psychologist inside? What programs has he done? Uh, has he been uh, have a job? Has he been fighting, acting out? And you know if that's all negative, then obviously you're not going to get parole. Um, but then when it comes time at the end of your head sentence, uh, if they still deem that you're a threat, um, there's not a lot they can do. But coming up to that point, they can extend your time in jail for offences inside. So you look at someone like Basim Humsey. Um, you know, the guy started Brothers for Life and that. If he had been a model prisoner, he'd be out of jail by now. But because he still has fights in there and, try and runs um, criminal enterprises from jail, he's never getting released. So even though he technically doesn't fall under one of the continued detention legislations, because he continues to commit crime in jail, he keeps getting sentences uh, extended for those crimes. So, you know, if me and you are in Long Bay Jail and I punch you on the head, I get charged with assault. And, you know, if it's bad enough, I can get two years sentence for that. And then that can get added onto my sentence. So... So... (laughs) So continued detention, is there a, they'll just keep going until your behaviour is deemed that you can be a contributing member of society again? Yeah, depending on the legislation, whether you're a sexual offender or a terrorism, but if you're a terrorism-related offender, when, and it's got to get be the, um, the Minister for Home Affairs applies to the Supreme Court for the continued detention, and initially it's three years with a review every 12 months. And then uh, after the second year, coming into the end of the third, is when they'll convene what they call a, a talk, so Terrorism Operational Review Committee, for that individual. Um, and about six months 
into it, the Minister for Home Affairs will have to make a decision whether he or she, um, on the advice given by uh, whatever contributing parties, believes that that person is still a um, terrorist and then will apply to the Supreme Court for extension of that continuing detention order. Right, so it's not like Shawshank Redemption where the warden's no. just in, just continually banging on sentences. This is like no, this no. is the Minister for Home Affairs. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And they you know, they've got to, and then it goes to Supreme Court. So say, you know, I'm the terrorism-related offender in in um, in we're talking about. I get I, I get I retain a, a legal counsel and I I defend it. So a lot of the work that I'm doing now is um, in the defence space too. So I I or um, we do, um, we write an independent report for the court. So we'll get the information from the, the AFP or the JCTT and we'll get the information from the defence team and we'll, we'll do you know, a violent extreme risk assessment on that individual from a neutral perspective and um, look at intervention strategies and uh, all environmental factors, come up with the why is this person still or is this person still a threat? And then provide that to the uh, Supreme Court for the judge to make uh, his or her decision on that that order. Oh, there you go, <laughs> mate. Um, yeah, it's a pretty. Uh, um, I'll say it's a pretty robust um, legislation and and process. The problem is um, it gets abused, and there's not a lot of solicitors that understand it. Uh, especially in the defence space, and um, that's a bit of bit of a bit of trouble there. Uh, and I now do a lot of lectures for Legal Wise, so solicitors have to maintain their um, training and skills, like PTs do. You know, you got to accumulate points each year. And I do um, two different lectures or presentations in the in, on terrorism legislation, and each of those are worth three points for solicitors. So now solicitors that are going to work in the terrorism space have to have these points to, to do that. So they're not like, when we talk about abusing them, we're not talking about um, little Johnny, he's at school and he's set off a pipe, he's set off a, a sparkler bomb and someone's got an ax to grind like we're going to charge him under the Terrorism Act. And people no, 100%. are 100%. Yeah. No, 100%. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah. Or... They get information that you know these four guys uh, have um, converted to Islam, or you know they're starting to wear swash stickers, um, and and this is what my crusade is now. That's when they're right for intervention. Um, you know they should be reached out to, um, and hey guys, what are you doing? Why are you wearing you know swash stickers, or why are you? Um, well, you know, why did you convert? Why are you watching ISIS videos? Whatever it is, and start the dialogue and start intervention. And that's what CVE is, counter-violent extremism. You're, you're opposing a narrative and you're working with the individual or the, the group to realign their views with the public narrative. What's happening now a lot is uh, law enforcement will insert someone into that group or organisation um, in order to get them above the threshold in order to make an arrest. So stitch them up. Pretty much, 100%. Bloody well, hell. Well, think about, think about this one. At the end of last year, 60 Minutes did that story, you know, with, um, uh, you know, that journalist of the century, Nick McKenzie, um, on uh, right-wing extremism in Victoria. 
and he had the head of uh, ASIO Mike Burgess on. Now, he used the same rhetoric and uh, language that Mike Burgess did. Where do you think that come from? How did, how did he get that access? And then, because he also um, works for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, front page was all the photos of the guys that they filmed on 60 Minutes. And, you know, one of the guys is an ex-commando. Um, he was the head of security for Crown Casino. Mate loses his job. His whole life is wrecked. He hasn't been tried. He hasn't been put before a court. Um, you know, hasn't been convicted of breaking any laws. But his whole life is thrown upside down. Um, because they wanted a result. They wanted to disrupt this organisation. And they did it with non-legal means. This is the same. We're talking about non-legal means and, and trial by media that we're talking about with the with the RS trial at the moment. Same guy, same journalist, 100%. 100%. You know? Um, his life will never be the same again, Ben. You know? God, I could go on forever having, you know, I, I served with him. You know, we were talking about Chogham before. Um, I worked with him and Two Squadron on that Chogham. You know, they were the... Uh, operational arm um, for the Tactical Secret West for Chogram 2011. Um, so, you know, I deployed into Afghanistan with, with two squadron of Ben and know those guys and, and uh, we'll sit there some nights and, and um, listen to the media and cry and just think that is so far from actually what happened and this poor bloke is being absolutely crucified Um for for no other reason than jealousy. Now, he's how far is that court case from finishing? Now we we nah, gonna get to the end. Oh, we'll get to the end, but you know there's still witnesses and cross examination and um, closing arguments, and you know, I reckon uh, maybe end of year before it's all done and dusted. But he'll never be the same. No. Um. You know, um, yeah, I, I look at him and I know what with my personal struggles and family law courts and stuff myself and, you know, I have good days and I look at him every morning walking in, you know, proud and I'm just like, mate, that just, that's just who he is and, yeah, anyway, like I said, I could talk for Is he going to be the uh, modern day Ned Kelly? He'll be infamous or famous. How do you think he's going to come out of the back of this? Um, so that's, that's, yeah, yeah. I just hope, um, you know, and we have as a public, uh, short memories, but you know, if you go back and you get on YouTube and you watch his interview, um, on, uh, channel seven, when he won his Victoria Cross and, you know, he's talking about Matty Locke crying and he's talking about the guys he works with, um, you know, his love for the guys he, he worked with, um. And like I said, and, you know, I've told you this story before. The first time I met him or worked with him over in, in Perth, mate, we got into a stand-up argument in a holding area um, about information and, you know, and, and um, because he's they strive for excellence and he's passionate and he's he is one of the best soldiers I have ever worked with. Um, and, you know, and um, he's... Met, uh, I got him out when I worked with the Manly Seagulls to talk to the young blokes, like, you know, younger. And it's on YouTube. If you Google Ben Robert Smith uh, Manly Seagulls, it's him giving a, 
uh, talk to these young Manly blokes, and that's like Jake Travojevich and uh, Clint Gutherson and that were in that room. And he's not talking about being a soldier or heroics. He's talking about being a better person. And and that's something that those all those kids, and I know because I know most of them still, uh, still try to live by. You know, my um, my son, my oldest son was in that room. And, um, you know, so he he's... But he's always been divisive because he has a personality that is massive. You know, his personality and you know, ego is in a room before he is. Uh, you know, there's no denying or hiding from that fact. And um, it is definitely with and against him, love, hate. You either love the guy or you hate the guy. Um, and I think that's a lot. That's more about what's on trial now than all the other crap they're talking about. But again, if you go to YouTube and Google Tizak and, and there's a Liveth the More uh, documentary on the Battle of Tizak and you hear what he does there and why he got his Victoria Cross and, mate, Anyway, yes, I, I like the, the Ned Kelly analogies. You're probably right, to be honest. I just don't hope they have the same end. No, I think, well, at this stage, from all accounts, following it uh, on Twitter and social media, especially on all the meme pages, his lawyer is killing people on that stand. Uh, yeah, I, I had that exact conversation uh, two nights ago with uh, a close friend, and I said, mate, who's actually a lieutenant colonel in, in the ADF, I said, you watch when his SC gets up and makes mincemeat of these of uh, of the witnesses, um, because again, it just comes down to jealousy. You know, are you making this accusation because you know you're a shit soldier and you had an ND or you didn't? You know, you're an infantry section commander. What would you do if one of your privates didn't oil his weapon and had a malfunction during a gunfight? You'd get an attitude readjustment. There you go. Nice. And so this bloke's having a massive crack at RS because that's exactly what happened. Something that's happened to, happened to every young soldier. Every young soldier fell foul on an exercise or going through IETs for not cleaning their weapon and having a malfunction. Like, you don't expect someone in the most elite unit in the Australian Army, in one of the most elite units in the world, to have that. No, there's a, there's a standard that you should be living up to, right? 100%. So don't cry when you don't meet that standard. Yeah, I mean, we had um, Keegan Locke, Matthew Locke's son. He's been part of Swiss 8 probably since its start. He's just had a kid now and he's yeah. having, a, having a breather and really investing in that. I mean, he was talking about, you know, that, that very incident where his dad got his MG and this dude's UD'd on a... Um, That's the guy, a, yeah. Yeah. That very so, guy's guy in Court Wingen. You're like, mate, you had a UD because you failed in your basic... You don't have to be an SAS guy to do that. Uh, you learn that at Singleton at the School of Infantry. Clean your weapons. It's the first thing you do during morning routine. One boot on, one boot off, getting some brekkie, cleaning your weapon. It's yeah. basic soldiering. I, I hope it comes out. I hope uh, It'll come out. It'll be good. But, yeah. um, but mate, while I've uh, got you, before, before, I, before I lose you on, are you over what's going on in the Ukraine at the moment? I, I mean, I know your Middle East is your area of, of sort of expertise. Do you... But yeah, you've been um, pretty spot on with some of your assessments. I mean, we, we spoke about the Afghan withdrawal on the news a, a couple of times and your assessment was pretty bang on there. Um, mate, would you would you be willing to put your hat in the ring and, and make an assessment? Or, Well, so I actually uh, deployed to Ukraine um, with uh, SOCOM when the MH plane got shot down 
So I've actually been and seen and the separatists. So, so for a time during my SOCOM career, the Ukraine was my primary focus. Um, it's interesting watching um, the geopolitical chess game because I get why Putin's doing it, and it's all it's all about gas revenue and and. Um, I get him not wanting to lose more former Soviet countries to NATO, but what people also aren't reading the room, if you remember, Donald Trump was trying to get the US out of NATO. So he's effectively, NATO was becoming a toothless tiger to the point where I would, the way the trajectory it was going on under President Trump, it would have almost been disbanded, but he's reinvigorated it by giving it a real-time enemy. So when he comes out and says, oh, we're only doing this because of NATO, well, your actually best course of action was to do nothing because NATO was becoming nothing for that. If you don't have an enemy, what do you need a, an alliance for? Now they've got an enemy, they need the alliance. So it's actually strengthened NATO. They're, they're more in sync and together now than they've been in probably 15 years. Um, so that's backfired, which is... One of his bluffs, you know, it was all bullshit, to be honest. But um, And it's just him flexing. Uh, the other thing is, and I, I spoke to um, one of the think tanks I do some work with in the US last night about this. The other big thing he's misread um, from a geopolitical perspective, if you look at Scott Morrison is about to run for an election and in a bit of trouble at home. Sleepy Joe Biden's in all sorts of trouble with the Democrats in the primaries uh, in the midterms in America. Macron's about to run for uh, re-election in France, and Boris Johnson because of his parties and getting on the can. Oh, the party scandal. He's in heaps of trouble. So what's better to deflect than pick a war? So all these. Yeah, they say what do they call it? War cabinets don't lose elections, mate. 100%. That's what the Falkland Islands was all about. You know, the, there was rioting in Argentina, so they invaded the Falklands and they were having celebrations. Um, then they lost and they, they got kicked out, but that, that's what it's about, you know. So Ma Macron flying to Russia to meet Putin has made him look very presidential with inside of France and they stopped looking about how much he screwed the country because of COVID. Boris Johnson going and talking to Putin and doing all these deals has taken the the shine off him getting on the cans during COVID. So they go, oh, we can forgive forgive him having that party because he's just saved us from World War Three. So again, Putin's playing into these these uh, weak leaders' hands. You know, if you get on news.com now, all the lead stories are about the Ukraine. And, you know, Putin came out and had a crack at Scott Morrison overnight. So all the negative Morrison stories have fallen off. And in a clickbait so society, what more do you want? So they're going to keep antagonizing it. Putin's just going to keep poking the bear, little incursions. You know, he's taken over those um, Russian-backed areas. But they were Russian areas anyway, you know. Um, and he's, he's uh, you know, we're just, you know, they're, what's he calling? Peacekeepers. We're just putting peacekeepers. If the US was serious or NATO was serious, you just put – you know, deploy the 101st Airborne, the 10th Mountain Division, um, you know, Royal Marine Commandos, uh, some French units into the Ukraine, right? If you're going to invade, you're going to kill us, and then you've got a war on your hands. Move an aircraft carrier fleet into the Baltic, 
So you look at, you know, the US go, we've deployed 9,000 troops, but you've put them behind the NATO curtain, not into Ukraine. So it's like saying, oh, you know, you go down the road and pick a fight, Mex, but I'll stay here and you text me if you need me, rather than if I've really got your back, I'm going to walk down the street with you. So you think this is all just a big bluff and piss and moan for the election seasons coming up? Yeah, 100%. So if, and I was thinking about this this morning when I was reading the updates. I always put myself in everyone's shoes and look at my courses of action. If I was the president of the Ukraine right now and I'm like, fuck, they're going to invade. They overmatch us militarily. NATO haven't given us any troops. They've given us some weapons. They've given us some, some armaments. Why don't I go all Japanese in December 1941 and attack first? Best force of the film of defense is offense. Where are all their tanks lined up? Or where's, you know, you look at what um, the Israelis do all the time. They get on the offensive. So where's, their, where's the, all the Russian fighter jets based? Let's go and bomb that. Let's see what happens. He's not going to do that because he's worried. If, if I do that, then they will in- invade. But, mate, if you think they're going to invade anyway, why don't you at least try to give them a bloody nose off the bat? Yeah, this is what sort of, and by no means, this is just the world according to mechs. Um, I don't think you would telegraph an invasion of the second largest army in Europe um, and give them weeks and weeks of advance notice, and especially telegraph that to the Western world. You would just do it overnight, just like America did with Iraq, with Afghanistan, they don't read about it. It just happened, and then you get the news story afterwards. Um, 100%. And that's what sort of he, gave it away for me. Yeah, he could have kept his armoured divisions well back, right, and done exact – like the US uh, gave the world the blueprint in the first Gulf War. Air campaign for 20 days while you move your ground elements to the border. So you're exactly right. The uh, Russians could have kept all their armoured divisions – 100 kilometers back from the border and then started an air campaign to take out those artillery batteries and the Ukrainian air defense systems uh, and ground areas while those tanks move forward after you've already got dominance. But like you said, by moving the tanks and that up to the border, it's just a massive chest poke. And Putin's in the same position. Um, He doesn't want to look weak. He's got an end state, which is... um, a negotiated peace where he comes out with exactly what he wants. Like, what kind of world leader has a $200 billion fortune? Hello, where does that come from? Um, but I, um, the, the greatest X factor and everyone's worry is that someone's going to overreact. And a ground force commander, you know, um, they fired shots. Uh, we thought they were about to invade, so we retaliated first and... And that triggering the, the conflict. So um, it's the on-the-ground commander control that is at its critical point now. So, I mean, as hasn't Russia's economy just, like, it's halved, the, the Russian... Yep. It's could get interesting. I mean, you could be forcing him into something. And that's that's why where And I, I think... This is where he's miscalculated with the other uh, leaders because they're in such weak positions too. They can't be seen to be weak either. So Joe Biden can't be seen to... Because think about all the mud they pushed at at Trump being a a Russian 
sympathizer and an agent of Russia. If and and Biden came out the other day and goes, thank God I'm the president. I'm the only president to stand up to Vladimir Putin. He can't back down, and I think Putin's misread that scenario. You know, it's easy to to pick on someone like Obama, the weakest um, foreign policy U.S. president, and he. This whole uh, crisis goes back to his him not following through with his red line threat in Syria in 2013. Because he didn't do that, the and we spoke about it in my previous podcast, the West lost all respect uh, for Obama and no one feared him or America. And look at where the world is today. And it is a direct correlation from Obama's failings in the Middle East. Ooh. So what do you think? We're gonna, he's going to be creeping excellence, biting off little bits? Yeah, but my like I said, my biggest fear on both sides is mission creep. Because the mission at the moment is attack and defend. And no one seems to be backing down. There's a very, very good, and I'll send you the link um, so you can maybe put it underneath. But there's a very, very good YouTube channel. um, And it's a daily intelligence wrap. And they provide the information as I would uh, briefing a commander. Maps with... Um, locations of military units, communications, uh, army, navy, or air, land, ground, um, diplomatic cables. It is excellent. It's one of the, even from a military intelligence point of view, it's one of the best update briefs I've ever seen. Um, so that's where I'm getting absolutely, a lot of Absolutely, man. We'll put that in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's where I'm getting a lot of my information from. And, and you know, they're talking about, they go down to the point where uh, unit commanders' names and backgrounds and stuff. So that is in depth, mate. Uh, thanks for coming on and and giving us a sort of an insight into the life of the terrorist hunter and and how you went sort of post service. I cannot believe the life going forward. What's your next? What's the next sort of five years looking for like for you? Where are you going to be? Um, well, so hopefully. Um, keep building on becoming a better father. Uh, I want to keep um, working in, in, uh, in the veteran mental health space, counselling and stuff. Um, and unfortunately, I've still got the Brereton stuff to get through um, and support my... Because you're, uh, you're sort of kind of intimately involved in that. Are you? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, out of... Yeah, it's 20 out of the 39. Um, you know, as the being the targeting analyst and doing the Japel packs and that, getting the guys out the door, a lot of it is um, why were they there? Were they after the right person? How did you know? Um, that kind of stuff, uh, rules of engagement, um, things that we've spoken about in previous podcast is you know when you put a civilian lawyer to pull apart that. Um, that's kind of one of the roles I'm playing though, a lot of questions around stuff. And then again, a lot of them are my targets. Did they get the right guy? How do you know that? How did you confirm that? Um, so, uh, but the mental cost that took, you know, I'm going through a family law court uh, thing at the moment. And um, when the prime minister and the chief of the defense force get up and call you a war criminal, that doesn't go well for you. And they don't no. retract it. They just double down on it. So... No, this family law court is something that uh, I'm sort of been 
fairly drawn to. Obviously, I don't have kids and haven't gone through it, but I've just been watching this process really put stresses into people's lives. I mean, brother-in-laws, friends, families, you know, this whole process is destroying people, absolutely destroying people. Yeah, because I'm going through it and under the law, you can't uh, comment on your case, but um, fathers have no say or rights. Uh, everyone that I know uh, that's going through it or gone through it uh, get hammered. You know, it's a long game. It's lawyers are terrible. They're so expensive, and they their whole thing is to draw it out, um, rip you off, send you broke. Uh, it's it's it really it 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 is the cause of more mental health issues in veterans than anything else. Absolutely, we're gonna we've got a guy lined up. He's a bit of a secret coming on that, uh, I mean, he's created a whole Facebook community. He's one of the biggest ones in Australia. I think in the Southern Hemisphere um, uh, that talks to this very fact, single dads going through the family law courts. Um, Crazy, man. So That's why I did all of my um, psychology qualifications and and counselling and that. And, and, you know, I've done um, parental alienation is a massive one that's uh, uh, not very well acknowledged in australia but you know i've just done um two diplomas out of europe on parental alienation and you know um there's no recourse in australia for um having your access withdrawn um and the effects that has you know like um uh you know uh, and the effects it has on kids, you know, why can't I see daddy or, you know, because he went to the war and he's still sick in the head, you know. Um, yeah, there's the a record? lot of stuff. Uh, we spoke to a lot of guys um, that I know that were having, okay, well, you've now you've got PTSD, your mental health condition. Um, now you can't see your kids and you can't have guns so, and you can't do this. So I, I um, at least twice a week get contacted by guys that I served with and do counselling with them, and so and so I I probably got over thirty guys that I served with. Um, I'll say in my books, but not you know that I help talk to, and it's because I've not only been through there, but I my I'm very public about being in a mental health facility. Um, you know, having hit my lowest point, um, and how to, how I came out of it. And I think, to be honest, that's my future calling. And it's why I'm so drawn to you and, and Sato and, and Swiss 8 because it's the, I think it's the, call, the next calling for, for veterans because there's so many out there that are, that are struggling. And it's a, it's a linked, uh, it's almost an ecosystem. They feed off each other. You know, you, you served your country um, and, and I know from a personal thing, uh, at the detriment to your personal relationships, then you get out, you know, we're talking about transition. You transition out and how do you go back or can you rebuild that bridge or what? And, you know, the army don't give you tools for that. You know, you join the army, you go through 90 days recruit school, IET school, selections, or at least extra training, deployments, pre-deployment training. Then you do a two-day course to get out but they don't retrain you to be a civilian. They don't look at you and go, right, okay, so you've been divorced and you see your kids every two weeks. How are you going to handle that? 
uh, how's your anxiety? Um, you know, we've spoken about the warrior gene before. Is that a factor? And then um, my latest research is focused around um, some stuff coming out of the US where they now say that um, a lot of veterans don't suffer from PTS. They suffer from LTS, lack of traumatic stress. So in their service life, they were so used to operating in the chaos um, and at high tempos that when they come out, they can't handle the silence. Um, and I know certainly for me, my psychologist early on said, you know, I could put you back in a bag, Dad, tomorrow and you'd be fine. And, you know, I think I spoke about the analogy last time. She said, oh, you're a, a lion trying to be a domestic cat because I didn't receive training on how to go back to being a domestic cat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, so that's going forward. That's where I'm going to put a lot of my focus. Um, and that's why, like I said, I applaud what you and Sato do because it's the, it's the next, next battle we all fight. Absolutely, mate. We'll have to uh, do a deep dive. I've, seen, I've got those articles that I've gone through that you sent me on, on those particular things, the lack of traumatic stress and, um, mate, we'll keep getting you back on and we'll keep you anytime, with the, brother, with the news and that, mate. Um, we'll get those links from you and we'll put them in the show notes for everybody for that particular intelligence. Uh, what do you call it? The UK, Ukraine intelligence, uh, update website. Sick, mate. Thanks for coming on. Um, and we'll chat to you later. Anytime, brother. Cheers.